0: So I understand that, uh, that our experiences when we're out in society can vary according to the types of roles you play out there. So for instance, if I go anywhere, because a lot of people see me in here or I'm very active in our community and areas around us, that if I go somewhere to eat, it's, it's rare that I don't see somebody I know. Or that if I go to the store, it would be rare that I don't, Stop and talk to somebody that knows who I am, and I'm trying to figure out what their name is, and how I might know them. Do I know them from baseball? Do I know them from being involved in the community, the ministerium, uh, or from volunteering in different things? Or is it from LEFC in this context? I often won't know, and so when you go into a place and all of a sudden you're not recognized, then you know it feels you know, pretty interesting. So yesterday, I went into Burgers, and, and I know many of the employees at Burgers. many of them go here to church, but I was wearing a, a baseball cap, and I was wearing my gym clothes because I had just come from the gym, and I've got to take on a project that day, so I'm getting my supplies at Burgers, and I'm seeing all kinds of people from the church and from the community that I know, and not a single one of them recognize me. And, and, uh, and one time, I even went past a couple of them multiple times, and, and they, they were taller than me, so I guess the bill of my hat blocked my face, and, uh, but they just did not recognize me. Two people finally did see me. Now, I wasn't going in there looking to be acknowledged or recognized. It's just that when you see people, you're about to say hi, and then you realize, well, they're busy talking to somebody and they don't say anything. And so, it was interesting. What came to my mind was last week's sermon. It says that often with people, uh, when Ed shared, he says often with people, we look at them as scenery, where they just simply blend in. They don't stand out to you, they're just part of the collage in front of your eyes, or you look at people and you see them as utility, they provide a service to you, so that's all you think of them as, is they can help you in some way, or you actually see them as people like you that desire to have connection, relationship, to be cared for, thought about, and to matter to other people. And uh, and it was so funny because it's like well clearly I figured out how to be scenery so I am going to start wearing a hat more often and uh, and try to blend in but uh, it was just a fascinating thing what connected. For me back to a message. And so um, part of what the sermon was last week was we we're studying the life of Jesus in the book of Luke, and we're looking at how did Jesus interact with people? How did he live? And how can we then mirror that in our own lives in the way We live. And Jesus, in the context last week, was preparing his disciples for public ministry, going from what was going on privately in their lives, and then beginning to see what he is going to do through them in the public setting. But he taught them something by acknowledging somebody in the room that nobody else took notice of. In fact, when you study the life of Christ, that storyline happens many times where somebody in the room who was not getting the attention of everybody else that was seemingly the most insignificant person there is the one that Jesus draws his attention to. And that was what he modeled for his disciples in preparing them for doing ministry in the name of Jesus, that we don't just see people as scenery or utility, but rather as people like you that are looking for relationship and care and connection and seeking truth of life. So we're going to continue that today in the book of Luke, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 13. So if you do not have a Bible, our ushers would be glad to provide you one uh, as they come down the aisles to just simply put your hand up. And this Bible can be yours if you do not own one. We would be glad to give it to you. So today, we're looking at uh, a situation where Jesus is dealing with a very difficult subject. In fact, when I did my master's thesis back in the mid-2000s, uh, around 2005, I wrote my thesis on atheism, and, uh, and I called it basically atheism, the Great Suppression. And the point was, is in Romans chapter 1, it says that in, in verse 18 that, that we know that God exists, all of us do, including atheists. But the difference between somebody who acknowledges that there is a God versus somebody who says there is no God is that the atheist will suppress the truth by their wickedness. So it's an act of suppression, that this idea of atheism. But as part of studying the thought of prominent atheists, a French philosopher made this comment. He said that the greatest problem for those who claim that there is a God is the issue of pain and suffering and evil. He says that is the greatest challenge to the idea that there is a God is that There is so much evil and suffering in this world because most of those who believe that there is a God believes that he is all-powerful and his character is all-good, which then for an atheist looks at, they have a hard time reconciling. Well, then if there is an all-powerful and an all-good God, then why would he allow all this evil to prevail? Why would he allow all this suffering to happen? So we have as this issue, this existence of evil and suffering as being a stumbling block for many many in considering having faith in God. It is a stumbling block. They can't reconcile. You claim there is a good God. You claim that there's a good and all-powerful God. But meanwhile, they've seen or observed and experienced perhaps Suffering that is at such a level or observed and seen evil that's so intense, they can't reconcile that concept that there is an all-powerful, all-good God. For others in Christendom, there's another challenge that comes into play with this issue of suffering or evil, is that some would suggest that any suffering that would happen to a believer would be, the, would be a direct attack of Satan, and it's not going to because if someone is go, is a person of faith this won't happen to you so unless it's been brought on by satan himself so therefore you have to reject the suffering and and do so in the name of Jesus they get this from a passage in 1st Thessalonians 5 that says for the church is not appointed to suffer but you have a hard time dealing with that out of context if you look at what was Jesus doing in his final teachings to his disciples. He was preparing them for what? Suffering, and lots of it. And then when you you could say, well, that was because uh, prior to the coming of the Holy Spirit. Well, the problem is, is that the, the Holy Spirit comes to the church in Acts chapter 2, and then the rest of the book of Acts talks about all the stories of, suffering that the church was going through and how to handle it. And then you deal with 1 Peter, which is a book written to a suffering church, giving them courage and faith to to stand in the midst of suffering. So to suggest, and in all those cases, you don't see any connection to, uh, uh, well, I shouldn't say any connection. You don't see as the primary connection that they say the suffering is the result of evil. Some of it, yes, but not necessarily all of it. Sickness came on those who were Christians. Difficult things happened in families of those who were Christian. Christians lost children due to illness or disease. They weren't removed from all the perils of life like anybody else. They were just as common as others. So for those who might hold to this idea, that suffering isn't something that a Christian is ever to experience, and if it does, then there must be something else at play, and that is, you must have sinned. Have you ever heard that one before? There are people in this room that I've talked to that have experienced intense suffering, and they had strangers come up to them and say, if you would just confess what your hidden sins are, you would be healed. Or you'd be relieved of the situation. Or they just simply, out of a caring tone, come up to you and just say, is there something that you're withholding from God? Maybe we should talk about that. You see, they equate this idea that your suffering has been brought on to you by something you have done. Now, Scripture allows that there are times when suffering is a direct result of sinful behavior. But that is not usually the most common experience. What we see in the human experience throughout Scripture is that suffering becomes all of us. We're given a lot of instruction on how to deal with it and handle it in a way that honors God and shows hope in the midst of suffering. Solomon wrestled with these questions. If you want to see a man that tried to get his head wrapped around this idea of an all-good God, an all-powerful God and be able to then reconcile with the evil and suffering he saw in life, read the book of Ecclesiastes. And he will tell you, he wrestled deeply with these questions. In fact, he asked these questions in the midst of it. Why do good things happen to both the wicked and the righteous? Shouldn't it be just to the righteous that good things happen? Or then he asked this question, why is it the tragedy happens to both the wicked and the righteous. And then he found another thing strange. He said, you know, it's interesting, regardless of how successful a person is or how much of a failure that person is, their beginning is the same. They are both born. And their ending is the same. They both die. They take nothing with them. They came into this world with nothing. They leave this world with nothing. And Solomon could not get his head around that. And so he ultimately says this word multiple times. It's meaningless. You can't try to draw meaning out of some of those things. It's about how you live. And he talks about at the very end, the one thing he can explain and he finds comfort in is that God is God and I am called to fear him. Jesus makes this comment in Matthew chapter 5, knowing that this is a, a common wrestling. It's not a new philosophical question, this idea of problem of evil and suffering. No, it's, it's gone on. And, and so Jesus actually says it in the Sermon on the Mount in verse 45 of chapter 5 when he says, God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So this past week, we had a couple of days that were just absolutely beautiful. And for many of us, maybe you were saying, thank you, God, for the spring weather. Thank you, God, for the beautiful sun. But meanwhile, your neighbor, who may actually despise the idea of God, who may actually give no acknowledgement to God, in fact, even take advantage of that day and thumb their nose at God, is experiencing the same beauty of that day. What do you make of that? Jesus also points out the farmer needs rain. The farmer that is on his knees praying for rain receives rain, but meanwhile his neighbor, who is also a farmer, receives that same rain. Who may have never prayed and may have even said that perhaps that it was just happenstance that my neighbors are praying and rain came. Again, Jesus says, the rain comes on the righteous and unrighteous. The sun shines on both the good and the wicked. We should not make too much of it, but rather acknowledge that there's God and he's in control. So this is a strange dilemma for all of us when we try to reconcile a powerful God who is completely good and a earth that has so much evil and suffering. This question was brought to Jesus. And you're probably thinking, really? It was actually brought to Jesus. In Luke chapter 13, you have a situation where suffering and a tragedy happens that's so incredibly uh, uh, insulting to Jewish people and a a complete offense. And yet within it, there was judgment. And we're going to get there. So let's look at verses 1 to the beginning of verse 3 of Luke chapter 13 says this, Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. So in history, we have a lot of records that talk about things that happened around Jerusalem uh, going back to this time. So clearly it was during a time when Pilate was in charge. We don't have the exact years that Pilate was in charge of this region of the world, but, but we know that it was at least through the time of Christ uh, that he was there. And so in this season of time, there was a moment we have recorded in history where Pilate, who had been uh, furious at the Galileans. The Galileans were regularly revolting against the the occupation of Rome. And keep in mind, the region of Galilee is in northern Israel, whereas Jerusalem's kind of more in the middle, but considered part of the southern portions. And so these Galileans were known as being a bit rebellious, and so Pilate did whatever he could to keep them in order. Well, a group of them had come to Jerusalem to offer sacrifice. Pilate, being shrewd, chose to have a bunch of his soldiers disguised as Galileans, mixed into the crowd, and then while there there were people worshiping and offering sacrifices, those soldiers, Roman soldiers, masquerading as Galileans, drew their swords and began to kill the worshipers as they were in the act of worship. This was seen as an offensive thing because it happened at the place of holiness, the Temple Mount. And, and, and then to have their blood mixed with the sacrifices. So it was offensive. It was uh, seen as, uh, as, as diabolical. And then yet, in this situation, there was judgment. You see, some that were not a part of the Galileans but were Jewish that lived around Jerusalem said, well as offensive as this is and yes they are our brothers and sisters they're galileans and so they deserved it because they have they're they're the they're less uh, educated than we are they're not as prominent and influential they're kind of the lessers of our society and they don't fall fall in line with us as religious leaders in Jerusalem they tend to go their own way and so some of them began to see that God judged them in this moment because they were bringing improper sacrifices or that they were evil and sinful. So their perspective is, is that, well, as tragic and as, as diabolical as this is, they kind of deserved it. They kind of deserved it. I mean, these Galileans are susceptible to some great horrific things and, and so maybe they, the God was just judging them for their improper heart and motives being not where they should so he rejects them by using the Romans as his judgment and wrath. Jesus knowing the thoughts in their heart when they bring this up to him because they're trying to get Jesus to be in a public trap. A lot of his followers were Galileans. And so now he's in the Jerusalem area where the more holy people are. And so he's getting them to to bite this bait to maybe he will start to say, yes, these Galileans had done something to tick God off. So he actually rhetorically asked the question, were these Galileans greater sinners than other Galileans? He didn't even compare them to the people that were asking this question. He says, are they worse sinners than other Galileans? And he says, no. He knew the biases that were going on that allowed them to think and compare themselves inappropriately to these Galileans. You see, there's something that we need to learn from this text even before we go to the rest of Jesus' response. Is that to presume judgment upon another or to compare yourself to another is a risky adventure. Because within each of us here, there is cultural bias. There just is. There is cultural bias. As soon as we start thinking that somebody is from the southern part of the United States, what stereotypes do you have in your mind? You know, think about it. We have them, don't we? Have you ever gone south and stayed a while? And then they, find, they say, are you a Yankee? They have stereotypes of you. It's just part of our country. And within those stereotypes are are certain things that that are derogatory. Some of them are okay. Some of them aren't offensive. But others, it's like, that's too generalized. I don't fit the prototype or the stereotype that you're trying to suggest I am. But it happens. And we make our judgments by that. You even see in the political media, as they respond to different things, they will say that, well, that's the evangelical South. As if the North feels completely different. So cultural bias can cloud our judgment. Secondly, our theological misunderstandings misguide us. Within this root is to suggest that that all suffering and wrath comes from God and is the result of your sinful and evil behavior. When in reality life ex- it just includes suffering and harm that is tragic and we see that that great godly people of the Old Testament who are honoring God lost children experienced difficult tragedies experienced disease, suffered death at a young age. What is very fascinating is when you study the kings of Israel, and it says, this one did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. This one did what was good in the eyes of the Lord as his father David did. And you watch all those kings. What is fascinating to me is you can't make a direct correlation to the length of their tenure as to whether or not they were good. Some of the most righteous kings only served ten years whereas wicked ones serve for 35 and 40. So Solomon's question, what do you make of that? Do you, is there meaning in that? Are there times when some of those kings lost their lives because they were doing evil things? Yes. But so did righteous people lose their lives. Did they lose their lives because they did something wicked? No. Jonathan, the son of Saul, lost his life not because he had done any harm or wicked, but just because he was doing battle on behalf of Israel. He just died. He suffered death. You cannot ascribe to God that all suffering is at the result of his fingertips saying, you must suffer. That is a misunderstanding of God and can really cause a distortion of God's heart. Thirdly, Suffering and tragedy can come to anyone regardless of your spiritual standing. And that is a true understanding of life. That suffering and tragedy, yes, can come to anyone regardless of where you stand spiritually. Matthew Henry made this comment, a great commentarian. He said, we cannot judge man's sins by their sufferings in this world. In other words, you can't list all their sufferings and then presume what their sin must have been. Can't do it because, number four, we cannot possibly know the motives or condition of one's heart. Now, you guys see me up here on stage, and and as a result, you get to hear a lot from me if you hear these 35 to 40 minutes each week. And you can make some assessment of my heart because I'm up here and you've heard many words, but could you accurately assess my heart? With precision. No, you couldn't. In fact, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, I don't even judge the motives of my own heart, lest I misjudge myself. He understood that we can hide things from ourselves, we can deflect things, we can have a, a positive lens of ourselves when maybe we shouldn't, or sometimes we have a negative lens of ourselves when we shouldn't. We are not great judges of our own motives at times. We think we are, but we're not. So if we can't even make an accurate assessment of our own motives, how in the world can we judge another person's motives and actions? We can't possibly be accurate enough to be a good judge of another. Jesus challenged this judgment idea by asking the rhetorical question, are these Galileans more sinful than these Galileans? And he said, no. Because, and I would say this, that implied in that is to judge the souls of another is to elevate yourself. To judge the soul of another is to elevate yourself. Now, would you say, for those of you that know Scripture at all, do you think God affirms such a platform for us as human beings? To elevate yourself, what does God usually do in response to that? He humbles you. Man should never think too highly of himself. God states that from beginning to end in Scripture. It's a common theme. Man wants to elevate himself, and God wants to always show, no, you're all in need of my help. All of you are. Let's continue reading. So he says, I tell you, no, they were not greater sinners than other Galileans. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 people who died when the tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. So Jesus hearing their chastisement, because these are, again, people of the elect, the elite, if you will, around Jerusalem, and they're calling out these Galileans, and now Jesus brings up an example of their own. The Tower of Siloam is just outside of Jerusalem. In fact, that tower was likely built to protect the water source of Jerusalem. I've, I've walked in Hezekiah's tunnel, which was built to protect this water stream that goes into Jerusalem to provide water if they were ever besieged by an enemy uh, a, a nation. And so this, this pool of Siloam was where the final collection point of that water where people could draw water. So it was a very valuable, precious commodity. In fact, the most precious thing for the survival of Jerusalem. This tower with 18 people likely means that those 18 people were there to protect on behalf of everyone what was essential. This tower falls, 18 people are killed. It's a tragedy. So in this case, nobody brings. What about the people that died in the Tower of Siloam? The reason why is because they're our own people. They presumed their innocence. They presumed everything good because Those people were protecting our water. That's a shame. This is a tragedy. But meanwhile, when the Galileans died, they must have sinned. They must have done something awful. Their their worship must have been offensive to God. But Jesus rhetorically asked, well, who's to blame in this situation? Were they doing something Worse than other people? Were they somehow sinning more than other people in the Jerusalem area? He says the same thing. No. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. So my question to you, rhetorically speaking, does this mindset of wanting to rush to judgment when suffering becomes someone else is that something of the past, or does it still exist? When you see some group of people suffer great harm, do you not tend to think, I wonder what they did that caused that to happen? You may not think that it happens today, but let me draw back to your memory some things that has happened in our lifetime. Take you back to 9/ 11, 2001. We were all horrified by that tower that fell. Of course, with everything like that, there was a lot of discussion over the media for the next several days and weeks and months to come as to why this happened, who's to blame for it. And then, of course, they wanted a religious perspective, and so they would interview pastors, and whenever they would get a soundbite that they'd pull out of context, something that would get traction, They would put it out there and play it over and over. And one of those sound bites happened when a famous pastor said, Gays, ACLU, abortionists must bear some responsibility for the falling of these towers. Now they played that over and over and over, and they missed the fact that that same pastor had mentioned compassion and, and serving and, and sending people to help in their needs. But the media got their sound bite they wanted. Their soundbite was, God did this, so let's be angry at him. This is the result of wrath, so let's be angry at him. In 2005, Hurricane Katrina wiped out New Orleans. Now, New Orleans has a reputation of being a party city. There's also there's a lot of argument as to whether or not that's Sin City or Las Vegas is Sin City. Now, for New Orleans, they'd say, no, we get a bad reputation for Fatty Tuesday, and that's when our sin happens. It's only one day a year, and, and with, with, whereas with uh, Las Vegas, it's 365, 24-7. But after Hurricane Katrina happened, it was said by many different preachers that this was punishment for the sin of our country. Ironically, one of the people that made that comment, and there were many that made the comment, just a few years later had his home wiped out by a flood. And the media enjoyed that as well. But that same individual was very compassionate and served the needs of the people, but the, but the world doesn't care what you do in love. They're looking for where to blame. They want ju- to hear what your judgment is. How about the earthquake in Haiti in 2010. Another famous preacher said, this is the result of having made a pact with the devil. I will also say that famous individual has done about as much as anybody to serve the needs of the aftermath of what happened in Haiti. But he got railed upon by people saying, it's like, yep, God is not the answer because his ambassadors are saying that this is the result of God's wrath. So, the world wants to hear from us, but they're also looking for the opportunities to cause us to fall. And one of the great things that they know intuitively is that every Christian is not perfect. They know that. And when Christians misspeak to suggest that they are, it's an opportunity to continue to show that God is not God. So why acknowledge him with your life? So Jesus is handling a very difficult situation. Galileans go to the altar to offer sacrifices, and instead their blood is what's spilt. These guardians of Jerusalem lose their lives because of this tower falling, and it's tragic that 18 people die in that moment. But Jesus is confronting the the tendency of humanity to rush to judgment and say, there must have been sin. Or in this case, because they were guardians of our town, they didn't sin, but but the Galileans did because we stereotyped them. Jesus responds in both cases with the same statement. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. The end of verse 3 and the end of verse 5. So the response that Jesus is asking of us when we see suffering and tragedy is not if your propensity is to want to rush to judgment. He calls into question. He says, you know what? The better response would be for you to evaluate your own life first to evaluate your life for your life is fragile and finite. We tend to think that when we're judging that we're beyond that, that somehow we're elevated and and we're not even taking a realistic look at saying, how can you possibly point when you haven't even considered the actions of yourself in the past few days? So it's, it's rather than looking out and trying to make judgment of the other's motives and, and sinful situations, but rather to look at yourself and see yourself for where you're in need of God's mercy and grace. This term repent is so important to understand and your life and your eternity depends on it. Repent means the changing of the mind. That's what it means in its essence. And in connected with the way it's used in Scripture, it means the changing of the mind so that your life can turn in a different direction. Because once you understand that you're a sinner and you can't do anything to save yourself, but that you need the work of God and His mercy and grace, then when that realization hits, the opportunity to turn to God for his mercy and grace has come. And if you don't repent, in other words, the mind doesn't change and you think you're fine without God or that you can do it on your own or you can somehow impress God, then he says here, if you don't repent, you will perish. Death will become you. And then when he states it again, it connected with what comes afterwards, if you don't repent, there is a death that will be final that will damn you. You see, all of us, as Solomon said, are born into this world with nothing. And we die and leave this world with nothing. But then there's a death that comes after, which is spoken of regularly in the scriptures when it says that when we die here on this earth and we, we will come before God and we'll give an account. And for those who have repented and acknowledged that Jesus was their bridge into relationship with God, then they will enter into life for eternity with God. And for those who did not repent and those who did not respond to the good news of Jesus Christ, it says that for them, they will be given over to a final death, a long-term death where they are eternally separated from God and living in eternal agony in a place we know as hell. It's not a topic we often talk about because it is so scary that many of us feel like we we shame people or we fear people into wanting to acknowledge God. And the reality is is that we've gone to the love side to a point where now they have no idea that there's something at stake for their life. If someone does not repent, they're at the cost of this point that says you are going to enter into a final death where you are eternally separated into a place where you will be in agony for eternity. That is a reality. And so this repent is a strong message. It began with John. It is now with Jesus. And it's the message of the gospel throughout the New Testament that the call to repentance, the changing of the mind, is essential for us to understand our need for a Savior. Because when you take a realistic view of yourself, you realize, I can't save myself. I cannot do anything to warrant God's favor. I will always fall short. Continuing on, Jesus talks about God now in the perspective of how God responds to this. He says, he, he says it by a parable, a man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard and he went to look for fruit on it but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and I haven't found any. So cut it down. Why should it use up the good soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and I'll fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then I'll cut it down. This is speaking to the relentless, patient, gracious behavior of God. Let me explain. This is where us not being Jewish and not being very familiar with the law may not understand all that's written right there in that small spot. You see, in the book of Leviticus, it says that when you plant a fig tree, its first three years, you do not eat its fruit. In the fourth year, whatever fruit it produces, you give to the Lord. And then in the fifth year, you can begin to seek it for food for yourself. Which then means that this tree that he is speaking of has been going for seven years without producing fruit. It's not doing what it was supposed to. It was meant to turn. And so what happens here is Jesus says, then there's another that comes in and says, let me dig around it. Let me try to help the soil around it. Let me fertilize it. And then perhaps it will show fruit. You see, this is the effort of God. For years... For some of us, he was working and hoping to see fruit from out of our lives. But because of us not repenting, we're fruitless. We should have been producing fruit by now, but we have not. So God could either choose to destroy us or he can continue to work the soil of our hearts so that someday, perhaps, we'll start bearing fruit. So this is what I learned about God. God is always graciously awaiting your turning. When he looks at your life and you're failing to repent or you're, you're thinking you're just fine, there's nothing that you need to give an account for before God, that you're just, you're just doing fine. God is working patiently and graciously to bring you to a place of repentance. He's turning over the soil in hopes that you'll repent and turn and look upon him as your sustenance for life. God is also then in this story, he's working the soil and he is not failing to do so. He will continue to do it even when it should have been cut down by now. He had every right to cut you off, but he chooses not to because he continues with hope and perseverance and with grace because you did not earn it, he continues to work in the soils of your heart. But there's a warning in this as well. He says, there will come a point when all has been done, I've been toiling, I've been working the soil of the heart, and it continues to reject and remain fruitless. There comes a time when it must be cut down. You see, it's an unwise venture to begin to look at others and think that their suffering and their evil they're experiencing has something to do with how bad or how un- disobedient they might be. It's a risky venture. And Jesus says, when you feel that pain to want to judge, that's your moment to put the mirror back at you. Why is my heart this way? Maybe I'm the one that's in need of repentance, not them. Fortunately, we have a very patient God. Fortunately, God doesn't play God the way some people might have him play. But there is something that is very true, is that God expects nothing short of holiness, nothing short of perfection from you or I. Because nothing imperfect or unholy can reside with him. Yet he desires us to be with him for eternity. So that creates a problem for him. A dilemma. But instead of being thwarted by it, he fixed it. By creating a bridge through his son Jesus. From his work on the cross, being the perfect human being that had never sinned, dying on that cross so that he becomes a once and for all sacrifice so that you and I have the opportunity to repent and let his work be enough and trust in him and then let the fruit of that be born in our lives. So if you hear anything from me today, be slow to judge and quick to repent. Be slow to judge, and be quick to humble yourself before God. Be slow to judge, and take on God's gracious and patient attitude towards other people. If you see suffering, don't worry about the judgment or the cause. Go in and be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ that is gracious and patient. That's what Jesus looks like, and that's what we are to be, as followers of him. Let's pray. So Jesus, I honor you now as the compassionate one, the patient one, and the gracious one. Forgive us when we have operated with judgment in our hearts where we presume the motives of another person, we presume the the causes of their life is that they are somehow more evil than we. Forgive us when we've taken your responsibility. And Lord, forgive us when we think so highly of ourselves. Humble our hearts, Lord. Make us a gentle people that is quick to serve and slow to judge. But Lord, for some in this room, they may not even know you. They may have never repented. And their soul is, in, is at risk of eternal death. I ask God that today will be the day of their salvation. So do your work, Lord, in this time now, I pray. In Jesus' name. Romans 10, 9, 10 says this. If you declare with your mouth, That Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, what we can learn from today is to acknowledge your Savior. Admit that you are imperfect and are in need of God's help. And believe that he is the one who provides through Jesus Christ. And to confess him as Lord. Lord of your life. The leader of your life. And you will discover what life can be like. Where you do not find condemnation in your life. Because God loves you. And God has made you his child. That's the opportunity we have when we repent. We have a changing of the mind that turns our hearts towards the living God who loves us and has been patiently and graciously working in, your, in our hearts to bring us to the point of belief. So if you have never given your life to Christ, you can do that now by confessing Him, Lord, and your need for Him. We'll have people up front underneath the cross would we'll be glad to pray with you, or you can pray with someone that, that has brought you here this morning. Uh, and, and I will also be up front if you wish uh, to come talk to me. We want you to know Jesus. So let's go from this place with not condemnation towards others nor fearing condemnation of us because we have a loving God and a loving Savior who graciously works. We simply need to repent and acknowledge our need for Him. Amen. Have a blessed week in God's name.